Welcome to episode 151 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This episode was recorded on Thursday, 2nd of March, 2017. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at thefredcast.com. I'm the host and producer the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. For show notes, links, and other information, simply go to our website at the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed from bikebiz.com, and you're listening to episode 151 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And this is a Spokesman special. So you won't be hearing from our usual cast of Irregulars or from David. However, you will be hearing uh, from three fascinating special guests. All three of them are academics. There are two professors and a doctor. Peter Norton is Associate Professor of History at the University of Virginia, and he wrote a famous book which talked about how the American motor lobby in the 1920s invented and popularised the term jaywalking in order to reframe what streets were for. I'll then be talking to Dr Melody Hoffman. She describes herself on her blog as an urban bicycle scholar. And we talked about bike lanes and people of colour thanks to her book, Bike Lanes Are White Lanes. Finally, I talked to Professor Chris Oliver of Scotland. Now, his Twitter name is Cycling Surgeon, so we'll be talking about cycling and health. As you can see, or you can hear, I should say, really, it's a packed show. So let's go across first to Peter Norton, who I was with in Paris last week at an academic history conference. It's the first time I'd met him, but we know of each other's work. He's familiar with my book, Roads Are Not Built for Cars, because that discusses similar issues to his Fighting Traffic book. But of course, we started by talking about bikes. No, I have not given bikes the, uh, the attention they deserve. And part of it was that I did not find bikes in the historical record, um, even when I looked quite closely for them. And I think it was because of my period, bikes were in the States very much in decline after 1900 and that was about the era I was starting to look at so um, bikes by then were already marginalized with a a very low visibility unlike um, in the 1890s when there was a bicycle craze. So in in your book Fighting Traffic from 2011 you're very much uh, talking about motordom and how this this entity of like a the motor lobby, in effect, we could, we could say at that time, so that mm-hmm. manufacturers, that's people who want to, to use the streets for, for motor cars, mm-hmm. made a very conscious and deliberate, uh, and, and from maybe perhaps today's perspective, almost semi-evil 
uh, decision to get people off the streets in order for the uh, these motor cars and their machines to take over the streets. Would that be a fair summary of what your wonderful book is all about? <laughs> Thank you. I, I think you captured it very nicely, Carlton. Um, uh, the, there was a sort of a crisis where the automobile comes onto the street. People think of the street as a place for people of all kinds in vehicles and on foot and going to and from streetcars, which were in the middle of the street. So to get onto them or get off of them, you were expected to walk into the street. And then these fast automobiles come along. And the result is a, a, a complex crisis, the worst aspect of which was people getting hit by cars. So unlike today, your average fatality, at least in cities, was a pedestrian, uh, probably a three to one chance that it was a pedestrian. And unlike today, people blamed the car. And I have to say, first, the, the people interested in selling cars in cities, the dealers, the auto clubs, actually were very much supportive of efforts to urge careful, slow, uh, law-abiding driving out of self-interest, of course, because their reputations were being damaged. But there was a sort of logical dead end to that for them, which was um, that eventually the car would be so restricted that it would lose its, uh, its attractions mm -hmm. to a would-be buyer. Um, I think, I think the, this really came home to them in 1923 when there was a major movement in the city of Cincinnati to require cars to be equipped with a mechanical speed governor that would make it impossible to drive it faster than 25 miles an hour. And uh, this was a wake-up call to motordom. In fact, this is one of the things that made them organize into something that they sometimes called motordom that included local and national auto clubs, auto dealers, manufacturers, and so on. And you can see them talking about this, this threat of restricting cars and saying, you know, the problem here is that we've defined the car as the intruder, as, as the cause, as, as the blameworthy party here. And if we don't redefine that uh, problem, then we're doomed. And they were that, that plain about it. Uh, and it was really two main problems they, they thought they had to redefine. One was the safety problem, because the newspapers, the editorial cartoons, the letters to the editors, and even the experts and the judges and the juries all were blaming the car. And, uh, the, um, and the second problem was uh, the congestion problem where, um, you, know, you know, the cars were getting in the way of other uh, street users. And the um, motordom said, you know, we're going to have to redefine this problem as a problem of insufficient street space. And they began to frame it in those terms and work very hard to, to redefine congestion and safety in terms that were car friendly instead of car hostile. On that point, and I, I will like to come back to, uh, to the term that, that you've popularized in many ways, you brought back to, to the fact that this was a construct and that, that's jaywalking. We'll, I'd like to talk, ask you about that in a second. But first of all, on, on the topics you've raised there, a lot of those um, things that were talked about in, in, in 1923 in Cincinnati uh, you could almost extrapolate today because the very similar conversations are taking place over driverless cars, over autonomous cars, where if you're going to get autonomous cars to go through city centres, they're going to have to get pedestrians and cyclists out of the way. 
because you can stand in front of them that's and they right. can't have that. I and mean, that's almost the same as same arguments. Well, yes, you're seeing a, a lot of interesting parallels. I mean, the, even the fact that the, the speed limit proposed for mechanical governor controlled cars in Cincinnati was 25 miles an hour. Well, New York City recently introduced Vision Zero with a 25 mile an hour five borough city maximum limit, except where otherwise posted. Um, and I, I, there's been a long sort of struggle between whether the solution lies in technology or in human perceptions and human behaviors. And so a lot of the pro-driverless car uh, visions that we're seeing say, well, we can take the people out of the equation entirely and technology can take over. But as you point out, Carlton, that's no automatic solution. Does this mean that if you walk into the street anywhere at any time, all the driverless cars will stop for you? Or does it mean actually you can never walk into the street? Because they're not only talking about smart cars, they're talking about smart intersections. In other words, intersections with no red light. And they have these amazing models that show you the cars never stopping. And you have to wonder, well, what does this mean if you are trying to walk across the street? And I think these things tell us that there's a dozen or a hundred driverless car futures. And we're not, we would be wise not to wait for the one that is sort of most powerful to, to impose itself on us. Could, could we not discuss the one that we actually want to have and, and work for that one? So let's go back to jaywalking. Yes. So that went now back into the 1920s. Right. Uh, so where did jaywalking come from? The, the word jay? I yes. mean, it, it, it's not really a, a known word, so it's 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 very much a, a known word now globally. Jaywalking right. is very much a concept right. that was picked up, and is a is a crime. I mean, it's not a crime in the UK, but I know in in, in lots of parts of the US, it's actually a crime right. to and to go across the road. So where did it physically come from? The word itself. And of course, it wasn't always a crime. It, it's an it's a real invention and a very I have to say a really ingenious invention, part of a much more elaborate and much bigger larger effort to redefine streets as places for cars. So Jay was a Midwestern U.S. slang term for a rube, an idiot, uh, a country bumpkin, someone who doesn't know their way around the city. Uh, and at first it was applied to people driving cars in ways that were a nuisance to other drivers, people who were walking on the sidewalk in the way that was for uh, getting in the way of other pedestrians, so that you could find terms like Jay driver even before the first instance of Jay Walker. And you find uh, uh, Jay Walker defined as uh, a pedestrian getting in the way of other pedestrians, only in the middle of the Midwest, uh, that is around especially Kansas City. And you start to see this in the Kansas City newspapers in the first decade of the 20th century. Now, at some point, people who were struggling with that problem I mentioned before, which is, how do we shift the blame from the driver to the pedestrian when a pedestrian gets hit? People in motordom who saw that this was their dilemma latched upon this word jaywalker, which was just starting to emerge, and they really propagated it because it served their purposes beautifully. And you can see them talking about it, deliberately using it to sort of redefine uh, who streets are for. And there were safety campaigns um, where this term was propagated. 
I mean, Kansas City tried to introduce a no jaywalking ordinance in 1912, and it wasn't very successful because I think they didn't realize that public relations has to precede this. Um, in fact, there was one episode where women with parasols used them against police who were trying to restrain them from crossing. Uh, but in Syracuse, New York in 1913, there was a safety campaign in December. Hard to believe there are any pedestrians in Syracuse, New York in December. But uh, there was a, um, a, a no jaywalking campaign was part of that and Boy Scouts were used to hand out cards to jaywalkers telling them what it was. We know that people didn't know what the word meant because the cards had to explain it and the newspapers had to explain what it meant. And they even had a department store, Santa Claus, with a megaphone, shout at jaywalkers. And this was a wonderful publicity stunt because, of course, it's so weird that the newspapers all covered it and the newspapers played it up because it was such a strange story. And for another dozen years after that 1913 campaign, you see in city after city, intensive anti-jaywalking campaigns, always backed by the same groups of people, the local auto club, the local auto dealers, sometimes uh, a national uh, like AAA would be involved, or the um, National Automobile Chamber of Commerce, that's the National Industry Association of the time, would get involved as well. The, the, the national effort really picked up after that Cincinnati uh, speed governor effort that I mentioned earlier. Um, and, and so these things all are part of this big goal. The big goal is convincing people that if you're a pedestrian, your right to the street is conditional. There have to be no cars in the way or you have to be at a crossing if there's a police officer who gives you the favorable signal or if there's a signal uh, light with the green light. In other words, you, you, you've changed from being like a first-class citizen of the street into a kind of resident alien who's tolerated if you follow certain strict regulations. So motorists don't have to get out of their car and press a button to cross the street. Right. They, so they're the citizen. They're the, they're, so what you're saying is the citizen who has the rights is the motorized citizen. Yeah, so in 1920, the, the, the right belongs primarily to the pedestrian. You know this because every time a pedestrian gets hit and goes to court, the judges almost always side with the pedestrian, and that really changes in the 20s, partly because of laws, but also partly because a lot of people sort of voluntarily concede their right to the street because these massive public relations campaigns have started to change people's minds about what a street is for. I have to say, those were not very successful when they were addressed to, addressed to adults, but addressed to children, of course, children are impressionable and they're learning from the authority figures in their lives like their teachers and the auto clubs were very smart about this and they got into the school rooms and they made sure that they taught the children that the uh, street is for cars and that uh, they should not enter the street until there's no car in sight and uh, that meant that a generation later at least uh, when these children were grown-ups the street really had been redefined quite successfully as a place primarily for cars. So uh, the word jaywalker was very successful. Uh, it was certainly in the UK from the 1930s. So even though it's a, it's a, it's a slang term, a US term for a country bumpkin, mm -hmm. we see it you know, within five, ten years. Really? We see it in the UK and we also see jaycycler. So it's a very, very successful word. And it, 
but people themselves, so the motorists, there weren't that many of them mm-hmm. in, in this period. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were the elites, of course. Right. So they had control of the media, they had control of the, the courts, etc. So I'm sure those court judgments you're talking about changed rapidly once, once everybody's got a, 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 a motor car. But there weren't that many motorists around. So was it the industry was really that successful at doing a PR campaign? Or was this, was this people themselves actually almost wanted cars to take over the streets? Such a good question. I, I find people tend to want to think it must be either A or B. In other words, it was either everyone wanted a car as soon as they could get one. And once they had one, of course, they thought of the street from the driver's point of view. And so you had a natural evolution that way. Or they want to think that it was all a scheme perpetrated against an innocent majority who resisted. And I, I, don't, I, I think we can accept the fact that reality is complex. It's a mixture. Um, I would say to those who, th- who tend to speak about this as a natural evolution, the response to a cultural and a market uh, demand and, and a cultural proclivity, that if that were true, then I could not understand why people in motordom in the 20s were so panicked by the way things were going. And it was palpable panic in the early 20s. In fact, car sales were declining in cities. And you can see their conversations among themselves within their trade journals. I've also seen the internal memoranda within the American Automobile Association. And they are terrified. They are really terrified that there's going to be a future where people in cities don't even think about buying a car because they don't think of the car as an urban mobility technology. And that was scary and that did motivate an enormous public relations campaign. I mean, really monumental in scale. Um, And, you know, they're, they're not going to waste the resources it would take on an effort of that kind if they were confident that Americans all wanted cars anyway and that it was just a matter of waiting for them to buy them. Um, in fact, they, they were speaking about what they called saturation of demand in, in the cities where they thought once a small minority of city people have cars, that market is saturated unless we redefine urban mobility as going around in cars. Because, you know, Ford was, you know, the, obviously the leader of the early audio industry in the USA, and Ford thought of the car as a rural vehicle, a uh, way to get from the farm to the market, from the farm to the railhead. And it took a reimagination of the automobile, largely led by General Motors, to convince people that it's actually a way to get around even large cities. Um, so that, that was by no means a natural evolution. That was, that was very much about uh, sustaining and, and expanding a market. Okay, that was a coffee machine going on, which is actually louder than uh, we thought when we were using it before. Uh, so I'm, I'm here in, in a, a, a conference in, in Paris with Peter Norton. And Peter, one of the, the themes of this conference is sustainability. So the, the, the future uh, for sustainable transport and, and, and certainly within cities. So one of the ways that we've been hearing at this conference has been the way that uh, sustainable forms of transport of all, virtually all around the world, have, have fallen off this proverbial cliff. So motordom took over, uh, the sustainable modes uh, all just fell away. So 
not so much in the US, but certainly in Europe, in the UK for sure, and, and, and most of uh, uh, where we are now in Paris, there are an enormous amount of footways, of sidewalks, of pavements, as we would call them in, in the UK. So that's dedicated infrastructure for pedestrians. And outside the building we are here now, they are protected with iron posts, so cars can't park on them, so you would feel that uh, y you can walk everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yet, even though we have that dedicated infrastructure, still the share, the modal split, has been falling since the 19, 1949, in effect, in, in Europe. The modal split for sustainable forms of transport has been falling despite that dedicated infrastructure. So does that not suggest that people, even if they don't own cars, they, they absolutely want to be motorised. They, they don't want to use their, uh, their limbs to actually power themselves. It's, it's almost an anti-modernity thing to do. I'd like to, to question the notion that we can say much about what people want in any absolute way that's independent of their circumstances. In other words, um, you know, to speak about the states briefly, traffic engineers will, will often justify investing something like 99% of their resources into moving cars on the grounds that 99% of the people are driving as if that is an independent variable and not actually dependent on the fact that, that the driving is, is the mode that is provided for. Now, yes, you have some nice protected sidewalks in Paris and, and many other cities, but notice that even in Europe, the, the modal split is highly variable, such that, uh, for example, in the Netherlands, uh, you had a, a very strong trend toward car dependency beginning in the 50s and accelerating into the 60s and early 70s and then a real rebellion against it such that the modal split in the Netherlands is now in, in most municipalities emphatically in favor of cyclists and, and other non-car modes. Um, in fact, much of what happened in Europe was uh, Part of, partly an American export, the, the traffic expertise, so-called, of the post-World War II era was uh, almost colonial in its, its spread throughout the world. And I wouldn't say that we can speak of them as having been welcomed by a, a car-loving populations because there was real resistance. Um, there was a practical rebellion against uh, this effort in Helsinki uh, when uh, American uh, transportation engineers proposed putting highways through Helsinki. Um, so uh, certainly I would agree most people ask them if they would like to have a car or not, they will say yes. And yet the question becomes, when is it advantageous to use a car compared to other ways of getting around? And I think that's where it gets much more complicated, and that's where we can't speak so easily about what people prefer in absolute terms. You only can tell something from what you measure. Very often, pedestrian traffic, as we are very much learning at this conference, and many of the people here are experts at, at, at gleaning the pedestrian traffic, and you have to even look at photographs sometimes. You can't actually get the pedestrian traffic from official statistics because they didn't measure this. They didn't, they didn't deem this important. But when you actually look at pedestrian traffic, either from photographs or from if there were in some uh, isolated surveys, 
It was massive back then. And even now, for instance, Paris is a, is a, is a major pedestrian city. Yet we were at the, the traffic control yesterday where the main engineer was telling us that the cars take priority right. on the roads. And yes. even though there's masses of people at lunchtime who want to go out for a nice, uh, big, boozy French lunch, right. so they will reduce uh, the timings on the, the traffic lights, which are deemed to be for cars, a little bit. Yeah. But generally, they're not paying much attention to the mass mode of transportation, right. which is walking. Well, the, uh, the engineer you and I heard yesterday said something very revealing. He spoke about uh, a street being redesigned in such a way that it would accommodate more pedestrians and more uh, street cars. And he spoke about that as diminishing its traffic capacity. And I'm sure I was not the only one in the room who was trying to sort out how he could conclude this. And, and of course, what, we're, what that was was a peek into his mind in the sense that he and his colleagues have been trained, and, and he admitted as much, to, to think, to equate traffic with cars. And since he's in the job of traffic flow optimization, and he equates traffic with cars, he's fundamentally then in the business of moving cars, which means that to the extent that you consider pedestrians, you're considering them as a, a nuisance to manage so that the cars can keep flowing. And so, yeah, as you said, Carlton, it, it, this is all a question of what you measure. Uh, I've found that despite their extraordinary mathematical training, engineers have an amazing willingness to not measure things without admitting that when they don't measure them, they actually are measuring them at zero, which means they're measuring them wrong, right? They think that they, they're avoiding error by not measuring when by not measuring, they're in effect measuring at zero. So, uh, you know, so much of this is about perceptions, perceptions by street users, pedestrians and drivers, and also perceptions by experts. And even experts, despite the fact that they're experts, uh, are people whose perceptions shape what they do. They shape the realities, they shape how they perceive problems, and that means it shapes what solutions they can see and which ones they can't see. Peter, well, it looks as though we are going to be going back to the conference uh, very shortly and the noise might get even uh, worse. But just, just briefly, the future. So you're a historian, yes. but you know, history can sometimes be used to, to extrapolate into the future. You, you know, the, the autonomous cars, as we talked about before, is very similar to motordom in the 1920s and the way they were re redefining streets. So do you subscribe to one of the views that are out there, which is motor cars are, in effect, 20th century technology. They had their day. The whole of the 20th century was theirs. In the future, cities are, I mean, rural might be a bit different, but in, cities are going to have to redesign and get cars out. Do you see that is the trajectory? Um, well, so I'm from the USA, and that does not look like anywhere we're heading anytime soon yet, where they're still building urban areas on the assumption that everyone drives everywhere. I would like to see us moving more toward an approach that doesn't choose any particular mode for or against in advance, but rather recognizes that just like you have different tools in a toolbox, and each one is for a particular job, and you want all of the tools, but you don't want to use a, a wrench as a hammer and you don't want to use a screwdriver as, as some other sort of tool, that 
this would actually be a, a wonderful improvement on, on the current habit, which is to try to make every transportation job the job to be managed by the same tool that is the car. That makes no more sense than a carpenter trying to make every job on a carpentry work site be a job that they solve with, let's say, a hammer. You know, a hammer makes a terrible saw, it makes a terrible wrench, it makes a terrible screwdriver. So why would you ever try to make your carpentry job a job just for a hammer? And yet, here we are trying to move people in cities, and at least in the States, we've tried to make every transportation job in the city a, uh, a job for cars. Peter, that's a beautiful analogy. Thank you. And I guess we are now going to have to go back into that yeah. conference. Thank yeah, it you. Looks that way. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> yeah. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to Peter Norton there. Peter's book is Fighting Traffic, the Dawn of the Motor Rage in the American City. And that's from the MIT Press. Uh, Peter also got a shout out in this next conversation. Uh, I talked on Skype with Dr. Melody Hoffman of the USA. She's the Diversity and Equity Committee member with the Minneapolis Bicycle Coalition. And according to her blog, phmelody.com, she studies bicycle activism and equity, community building and racial and class justice. I originally got in touch with you uh, for my book, Bike Boom. So I was writing something about... Um, bike lanes and how they can potentially be quite white and mm -hmm. not always the most equitable bits of infrastructure put in because they put in sometimes I'm not saying all the time but sometimes they put in areas where uh, for want of a better expression it's like a hipster area or white hipster area somewhere where do they really need this infrastructure perhaps and why are they getting this infrastructure and and analyze you know the, the 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 kind of the rights and the and the wrongs of that and then i must have been googling away and then i found your book so bike lanes are white lanes uh and then i found your your blog and your your podcast etc but let me just uh, just go zoom in on, on that particular book so i know it's it's tough because it's a whole book so you can't summarize the whole thing but just tell me what Bike lanes are white lanes. What's the premise of that book? Well, the premise is basically what you just articulated. But I think from a U.S. perspective, we've been seeing a shift in city governments being more interested in bicycle infrastructure because it does market to a very specific demographic, which, as you noted, is, you know, white, middle class, hipster. There's this concept called the creative class that mm -hmm. Richard Florida, a mm -hmm. sociologist, uh, developed, um, which I don't agree with his work, but like his definitions of what the creative class is, is very helpful to kind of understand who is being targeted by this infrastructure. And so in the U.S., at least, um, all the the former ways of asking for bike infrastructure, which was often through, you know, DIY, more radical activism, asking for rights to the road via critical mass and other protest forms has been like very much replaced with this more using the government and funding and development and economic stuff really to get infrastructure into the city. And then of course the consequence is that the infrastructure gets placed inequitably and that so only certain sections of cities and towns get 
get the resources and others are left without. And there's plenty of evidence to prove this in the United States. So, that, I mean, that's a general premise. The, the other addition to that is that it's it's a three-city case study. And so the first case study is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is a working-class town. Um, and that one doesn't really necessarily focus on infrastructure. It focuses on what happens before infrastructure because Milwaukee doesn't have a good – they don't have a good sense of how to get infrastructure for bicyclists. It's just not, it's not stressed. Um, our governor of the, of the state is Scott Walker. And I don't know if that makes international news, but he's known for cutting public funding for buses and uh, biking and other kind of mass transit, eco-friendly resources. So he doesn't put any money towards it. So in that city, we don't have, we don't even have that conversation. And so we were looking at a, a uh, 24-hour bike event that is in a very racially mixed neighborhood, but yet still is a very white-dominated event. And so I was kind of trying to figure out why that is. And then the other case studies in Minneapolis, which is another Midwest town in the U.S., and then Portland, which is on the West Coast, um, those dig very specifically into infrastructure and issues of gentrification and racism that came up when uh, different infrastructure was proposed. Can I just ask you, I mean, this is clearly a black and a white issue in, in more ways than one, but it's also, you, you could say it's it's almost a class thing. So it, it might not be, and this is the question to you, it might not be a, a, a black and a white thing. It might just be a middle class thing and a working class thing. So different people in, in, in our current uh, culture of where cycling is right now, it, it does seem to be. In, in many respects, a middle class thing to do. So why do you drill down into saying this is a class, uh, sorry, a, a, a race thing, in effect, rather than just a, um, a class thing? So I think the answer is twofold. It's both um, about U.S. specifically and our relations with with race, which is different than, you know, every country has its own story. Um, But then also what the actual community was saying. So first off, I mean, unfortunately, in our country, a lot of lower income people happen to be people of color. So our wage gap is horrible and it's it's really bad specifically for African-Americans and Latinos. And then if you break it down by gender, it's even worse. So unfortunately, there is a correlation between lower income people and people of color in this country. And so I do talk about that in the book at the beginning, but unfortunately, lower class and people of color can be kind of used interchangeably and mean the same group of people, which is sad. And of course, there's exceptions to that. There's plenty of working class white people. There's plenty of um, affluent people of color. But for the most part in the United States, that's just how the demographics lay out. And of course, there's systemic reasons for that. But also, you know, I went into this project as a gender, like somebody who is more interested in gender. But the community kept bringing up race. And so that's when I paused and I said, what's going on here with the race thing? And it was the communities that were tying bicycling to a white dominated thing. And then they were also bringing up race in terms of our neighborhood has been predominantly people of color. You have been ignoring us for many decades. And now that white people are moving in or white people want to bike through this neighborhood, now you're paying attention. So that was really a cue that I got from communities that they were finding race issues embedded. I've read it in, uh, elsewhere on from American uh, writers where they say that, that they're almost the, 
the way to feel as a white person, to feel as you're a person of colour, is actually to get onto a bike because it's you're all of a sudden you're actually marginalised in a way that maybe black people have been marginalised um, for a, a long time. Do you do you see the fact that actual white people on bikes could also be uh, marginalised? Yeah, so I'm very familiar with that argument. It came out, I think it was a blog piece and then other people have been repeating it. I do have, I, I hear that, I understand that. I mean, I think one of the, one amazing thing about the bike is that it does give people a different experience of our world. And especially if you grow up in a more privileged position and then you get on a bike, yes, of course, like now all of a sudden you are the marginalized person in that space. And so that is giving people a sense of what it's like to be marginalized. But in our current situation, not only does that person get to get off their bike and become a non-marginalized person the minute they walk into the store or their home, but also they're getting preferential treatment in a lot of cities anyways. So they can say, yes, I'm marginalized because this car is cutting me off and I feel like I'm an outsider on the street. But they can also be confident in knowing that for the most part, of course, I'm speaking generally that cities are very committed to keeping white middle class educated people around. And so they will always be prioritized with transit planning. So I've seen maps and I'm I'm sure you're very familiar with the maps where you, you see bicycle infrastructure routes and then you superimpose them on um black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods and they do amazingly correlate to the white neighborhoods and they almost you know just are truncated at a at a at a black neighborhood and then we'll we'll carry on in another white neighborhood is that something that you're familiar with i've i've heard that critique it's not um sometimes it's ugh, to use the pun i was going to say it's not as black and white as mm. as that is <laughs> all the time because the other aspect is that uh, city planners and, and bike advocates will push for infrastructure in changing neighborhoods. So it might technically still be black dominated, but over time will shift demographics, which is what was happening in Portland. And so in Portland, at least, there is uh, very clear research that shows where bike infrastructure goes, gentrification does follow. And so it, it what it really does more so is that it predicts shifting demographics there's there's more evidence of that than you know this mapping of right onto black and white neighborhoods because things are right now in the United States at least we have a lot of shifting of demographics happening in city centers and so where it used to be predominantly african american is now morphing into a white neighborhood and black people are getting pushed you know, further north or south or wherever it may be. And that's happening in Minneapolis and Portland and many other cities. And so because of the changing demographics, it's it's kind of hard to do those maps. But I know they exist in both the map, the bike lanes onto the white neighborhoods, and then also as a predictor for how neighborhoods are going to shift. And I mean, but honestly, if you, it's not surprising, though, when you look at how these decisions are made in the United States. So it's, you know, if, if city councils now are going to give a lot of funding for bike infrastructure, who are the people that are going to show up to these meetings and ask for bike lanes, right? Who's going to sign the postcards? Who's going to make the phone calls? If you're already a bike advocate and you've already felt like you have some power 
in the system, then you're going to be more likely to stand up for that. There's other people who they they wouldn't mind having bike infrastructure in their neighborhood, but it's not their number one priority, you know. And so the inequity can happen as simply as that. So it's not surprising. And the way our system is set up, it's that's why it's happening. It's, there's no question of of how it's happening. It's just how can we then like stop it? Like how can we stop the status quo from repeating itself? Now you, you talked about gentrification there, and then one mm-hmm. of the, the the concepts in your uh, in your book is that uh, a bicycle, uh, the, the very fact that you're you're cycling it, it is a, it's a you call it a rolling signifier. So this is something that just the very fact of cycling uh, can bring within it in its wake these changes. Yeah, and uh, the other way that I was talking about that concept is that tying it into the the last thing that I just said was uh, the bike signifies different things to different people, right? So for you and me, we might see a bike as freedom, as something to make us more healthy, as an alternative to cars, as an environmental protest against the, you know, the oil industry. I mean, there's all these things that specific demographics feel about bicycling. And, that, and that's the like, you know, for me, I'm speaking as like a white middle class person, right? That's how I see the bike. But if you talk to other people from other cultures, you know, like young African-American men, they don't like a bike signifies poverty. It means they can't afford a car. And if they're already trying to get out of a lower class situation, the last thing they want to do is ride something that signifies their poverty. And so there's been some ways to make biking seem more, luxurious and fancy. Um, there's been some art projects around that in the United States, but for the most part, we as bike advocates have to understand that not everybody sees the bike as a symbol of freedom or empowerment or environmentalism. Some people see it as something negative. And there's also, you know, where I'm, where I'm living, there's a, there's a very large Somali and East African population. And depending on the generation that you're working with, some of them, like there's gender issues where there's very strict gender expectations and so that women cannot be exercising in front of men. There's like all these things that as a tolerant and accepting society that we have to deal with, you know, and then, I mean, I could start talking about helmets and how uh, for a lot of people, their hair or their headscarves, you can't put a helmet on, right? And so if they're being taught that you have to wear a helmet to ride, well, all of a sudden now they don't even consider the possibility. So it's the signification of bikes and how it intersects with culture is is something that I'm really interested in and something that I think bike advocates need to be more aware of. Sure. Now, in the Netherlands, where they have large immigrant communities and they have bike infrastructure, they, they find that uh, the infrastructure does attract some immigrants to get on bikes, but the, what you were saying there about uh, the bicycle isn't always seen as a, a as a symbol of, of freedom. Uh, mm-hmm. It can be seen as a, a symbol of poverty. It, it does seem to suggest that in, in the Netherlands, even the, how much infrastructure, wonderful, fantastic bike lanes they put in, there are still going to be large numbers of people, no matter how much you put in, won't actually get on on a bicycle for those cultural, uh, social, uh, perhaps even historical reasons that you, you, you suggested. Correct. Yes. And 
another way to, to look at it as well is that bike infrastructure is not always the answer to getting people on a bike, right? So I've, I've done some, I've had many conversations with different communities and, you know, when we ask them, what are the barriers to biking? They don't say there's no bike lane in my neighborhood. Like that doesn't come up as a number one. They might say, I don't have a lock. I don't have a safe place to put it. Um, I have kids and they don't have a bike, so I can't be biking as well, right? The the infrastructure thing is like bottom of the list. And really, they just want to have a quieter street to bike on. They don't they don't think as, of bike lanes as the answer to their safety. Um, and that, so that's just like one way to, to get people safely on a bike and, and get one one way to get people interested, but it's not a reason that a lot of people give. But also, you know, speaking of immigrants, um, there is a vulnerability to riding a bike that a lot of us forget about. Uh, and this is something that I talk about in my last, in my, in the fifth chapter, kind of tying it in with some social issues that have been going on in the United States in terms of, you know, we have a lot of police brutality issues um, and we have a continual issue with immigrants and undocumented people being uh, targeted by ICE and the federal government for deportation. And so how can we be asking these people that feel like stepping out of their house is might end up in death or deportation? And like, this is literally how they feel about our world, which makes me so sad. And I'm not, you know, I'm not exaggerating. If you're not living in America, like this is a real thing that's going on. How can we ask them to get on a bike where they're extra vulnerable and extra visible and easier to stop and question, you know? And so that that's why in, in our country, at least we see a lot of people riding on the sidewalk because they don't want to cause any problems with cars. That's why they don't have lights because they don't want, they don't want to draw attention to themselves. But then also there is a lot of people that bike in the United States that we don't see. And there's this concept called the invisible cyclist, which has, has its problems as a term. But the idea is that in our country, if you look at new census data where we, where we, uh, Take, take a note of our general population, the people who report to be biking the most are lower income Latino people. And there's census data and more data that's coming out that just keeps confirming this. And so you might say, well, I never see them on the bike lanes, right? Well, when are they biking? Where are they biking? How are they biking, right? And so we need to be paying more attention, especially in the United States, about really tracking what populations are biking and targeting them with advocacy because the bike lanes are not necessarily the answer. And that's not necessarily where we're going to see all bicyclists, but because that's how cities are are putting the focus on in terms of bike safety and bike encouragement, that's where we look. And so we have to really broaden our scope of where we're looking for these people. Uh, if I, you actually reminded me there about where you appear in my book in that I actually uh, put you in the notes with uh, Dan Copel who's the author yep. of mm -hmm. uh, July 2006 issue of Bicycling Magazine, which is a fantastic uh, article, which is exactly that. And he calls uh, the, mainly the Latinos, which he's talking about, uh, he calls them the invisible riders. So there's this mm -hmm. huge amounts of people on bikes that uh, white middle class uh, cyclists either willfully ignore, but probably actually not willful, just they just don't see them. And it was a big issue in, in 2006. And it's, it's, it's obviously still a, a big issue now. And I've, I, I do travel a lot in the US. And when I go into places like Las, Las Vegas, you see a whole load of cycling actually going on. But you're right, they're, they're, they're riding on 
what we'd call pavements, you call sidewalks. And but they're using almost cargo bikes in that they're they're carting around these these uh, these things that they kind of hand out on the street. If you know Las Vegas, they hand these pretty awful cards mm-hmm. out to passersby. Oh yes. Well, mm-hmm. they're, they're actually using um, uh, big beefy bikes to to transport all these awful leaflets around. So that's actually they're not transporting the nicest things around. But they're doing it at least in a nice way in that they're using what we like people to, to, to get around on, which is which is bicycles. So it's very practical. But I do appreciate what you're saying is one of the reasons they, they want to stay incognito is because they just want to keep under the radar and they want to s- stay hidden, in effect. And, yeah. and they are very much hidden because an awful lot of cycling is seen as this 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 white middle class hipster type thing. And yet as you're saying, and as the stats would probably uh, totally agree with you, is there's, there's loads of people riding who who we don't even know are riding. Yeah, and, and you bringing up that also reminded me of this another vein of research that's coming out now about how these immigrant populations uh, are being targeted so in las vegas i just a follow-up question for you did you was the was it a specific race of people or ethnicity of people that were biking around the pamphlets yeah these are latinos so it's, okay uh, okay i would say definitely yeah I so anybody else who was doing it was latinos okay so yeah that that's like a perfect example then so there's the latinos there um in the food delivery cyclists in new york city are often immigrants some undocumented and then i also just got privy to a new article that hasn't been published yet but it's um and i don't even know who the author is uh because it was not revealed to me but there's um some new research coming out in canada where somebody followed around migrants who were there temporarily to do farm work and how they use bicycles. But the common thread here, and I'm wondering if this is happening in Vegas as well, is how those specific groups of people are policed because in Canada and New York, they are being targeted because they stand out. You know, there are a certain group of people, they, you know, like in Las Vegas, they clearly stand out. And so they get policed. They start, um, you know, there's like new laws now where in New York, the delivery drivers have to wear vests and people complain because they're not following the rules. And it's so easy to target them because it's so easy to find them on the streets. They stand out because they don't look like the quote unquote typical cyclist. And so now we have the problem of in the spirit of bike education and keeping these bicyclists safe, we're going to regulate how they can and cannot bike. And that, you know, obviously creates problems and creates unequal enforcement of, of bike laws. So I just want to throw that out as well as another thing that some bike advocates are paying attention to of when these when these groups of people that are often marginalized start biking in mass, how they are unfairly targeted as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, talking about unfairly targeted, that I've got in my mind and I'm pretty much throwing it into a completely different area here for you. But mm-hmm. uh, in the 1950s and 60s, when when an awful lot of the the major roads were built for for mainly for for motor cars so the the freeways were put down a lot of them went through black neighborhoods and uh bisected and dissected black neighborhoods so the one i'm thinking of is a there's a photograph uh and it was actually it was in peter norton's talk last week uh who who was also on this podcast uh later on or maybe even before i'm not too sure uh, and he did this uh, showed this photograph of Hastings Street in 
in Detroit, where this was a, an R&B uh, incubating neighborhood. It was a very lively black neighborhood with lots of black businesses. Just, it, was a, it was a thriving, thriving neighborhood. And then they put this amazingly horrible to us, ugly bit of infrastructure through the, this particular road. And they completely collapsed the community. And they didn't seem to care because it was a black community. Um, so is that something that bike lanes aren't as, as big as the freeways, obviously, and they're not going to be uh, potentially as socially divisive. But could bike lanes actually be almost doing what those freeways were doing? And that was uh, going into communities where they shouldn't really be going. Yes. Yeah, so that is a issue that almost every major city in the United States has. And it's I'm so glad you brought that up because when bike advocates get confused about pushback against bike lanes, it's because of that. Because in Minneapolis and Portland, the infrastructure that I was studying was going through the very neighborhoods that, you know, 50, 60 years ago were dissected by freeway construction. And these neighborhoods and these communities don't forget that, right? It, even though it happened 60 years ago, it still impacts them. And so they they would bring that up. I mean, and that pain is real. And so they would say like, they did, they made the connections. I mean, they said, this is another, this is another freeway through our, through our neighborhood. So you're going to put this bike lane down and evidence shows that what, what's going to quickly follow is gentrification and condos. And there our neighborhood goes again, you know? And so, yeah, they bring, they actually bring up that history as a reason to not be supporting these bike lanes. And what I think the community would also want to be clear about is that it's not like they're against bicycling. It's the way that this planning happens, right? So I don't think many people who have cars would be technically against freeways because it gets us places faster. It's where they chose to put these neighborhoods, where they chose to put these freeways, which across the country was in black neighborhoods. And there's a book, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Highway Robbery, that like talks about this mm -hmm. extensively and brings in new information. But yes, there's a direct correlation and it's not as obvious as freeways, but it's unfortunately having the same impact. It didn't have to have that impact, but cities started using bike lanes as a form of economic revitalization. And it didn't have to be that way, but that's what they chose. Just like they didn't have to put the freeways through the black neighborhoods, but what a coincidence, that's where all of them went. So we talked about problems so far, I guess. Uh, are there any solutions? What what can be done? Are we, are we talking about um, community involvement? Are we, what, what can be done to uh, mitigate the situation and maybe improve the situation? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of solutions and they almost sound too simple. But although they're simple, not many people have actually engaged with them. Right. And so getting people of color at the table, you know, if we're talking about city planning, and where to put bike infrastructure and all that, right? I mean, getting people of color or people who understand this framework, at least, at the table. Because, you know, I go to a lot of bike meetings. I was just at a, a county level, you know, so, you know, a little bit bigger than the city bike planning committee meeting. And the, I looked around, there were all old white people. And then there was one black woman and she called herself the token black person. Like she was aware of who she was, right? And so like that is not, that's 
typical. That's typical in the United States, right? We need to get more people of color at the table. Um, another solution in terms of gen- the gentrification thing, and and you know this might be U.S. centric, but we have a issue of you know when. Uh, houses foreclose on or, you know, neighborhoods are in kind of, they're kind of fading away. Developers will come in and buy buy up all the cheap houses, right? And just wait for gentrification to happen. Well, our cities don't have a lot of regulation power over who's buying them, how much, how they, how much they can charge when they resell, right? Because we're a free market capitalism system. And so there's been a push um, you know, from some community members with not a lot of power to to ask cities to get more involved in regulation. And I know New York City, the mayor had made that a priority to to get more involved in the housing situation because neighborhoods were gentrifying at a, an alarming rate. And so it's also about, it's weird, but like getting bike advocates more privy to housing and privy to real estate stuff and how markets work and how gentrification happens in, in, in stages so you can stop it. Because there are hopeful moments. I mean, in Portland, this wasn't, it was tied to the bike thing, but in in a black neighborhood, they wanted a Trader Joe's to go in, which is, uh, do you all have Trader Joe's? Did that become no. a global thing? No. It's a, it's like a, it's like a co-op, like a food co-op, but it's like cheaper prices. But just to be clear, it's like white middle class go shop there. It's like our favorite store. You know, it's not, uh, it's, not an, it's not a really accessible grocery store. Anyways, uh, the black community fought back and said, we don't want this Trader Joe's here because we know what's going to happen after it goes in. We're going to all get kicked out. And, you know, some of their businesses were being kicked out at that time. And so it also requires community organizations to get a lot more in the face of cities and, and demand that, you know, gentrification stop. The problem is that, of course, some of the stuff happens behind the scenes. You have to be on top of the stuff years before it happens. You know, like gentrification seems like it happens overnight, but it was a, a deal that was made five years ago that nobody was paying attention to. So that's why you need to get more people at the table. And really, in our country, it's about racial equality, equity, and getting more people of color in bike organizations, city planner, city council, you know, where all these decisions are made. And it's, it's a really slow go here. It's really slow. It's, it's really sad, but it's still very hard to recruit people of color and to maintain people of color in these positions because, you know, we've set up these systems that it's like, it's like we run meetings like white people like to run meetings, you know, and it's not very engaging. And so there's there's lots of issues to that. But, you know, it's it's really about getting people at the table. It sounds simple, but I mean, I think that's where we need to at least start. But how about the, the issue you mentioned before, which is, um, say, young African, African-American guys who just don't equate getting on a bicycle as something that they want to do? So how can that uh, be addressed? Sure. Yeah, the the way that that is addressed is again, you know, if my bike organization is is white dominated and I'm trying to reach out to black people, it's not going to work because we're from different cultures, right? And so I mentioned this art project earlier. There's groups like the Scraper Bikes out of Oakland, California that they said, "You know what? We can't afford cars, but we can make our bikes look like cars." And they, so they, they put pimp, like pimped out their bikes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, basically. And that speaks to young people. I mean, mm-hmm. that really speaks to them. They taught they taught young guys how to put speaker systems on their bikes. You know, it's that kind of outreach that needs to happen. Um, but also, you know, different arguments. So the environmental argument might not work, but 
hey, you might have, you know, health disparities are unfortunately very common in, in black neighborhoods. So high rates of asthma and diabetes is, is the current issue in the United States with African-American populations. Using that, it's like, okay, your doctor says you need to get more exercise. We have a fun way to do it. It's, it's by biking, you know, and that speaks to them more than like save the world, you know, which is whatever. I mean, it's just how it is is, you know, they're not going to get motivated by that. They're not going to get motivated when you ask them, why don't you ride to work? It's like, cause I have three kids and I have to stop at the grocery store. I mean like, no, but if we say, Hey, you need to get your blood pressure down, ride your bike on the weekend. We can, here's a trail that you can use. It's right by your house. That, that gets people on bikes more and kids too. That the, the communities that I've worked with that are often marginalized in bike advocacy kids is a huge thing. I want to ride my bike with my kids. You know, we never use that as an, as a argument to get on your bike, right? We're always like commute to your job, pick up your groceries, ride a marathon or, you know, the Hmm. century rides, you know, it's all these like big asks that just don't, it just alienates people. And so it's really figuring out where they're at and what speaks to them. But again, if it depends on who's doing the advocacy work, right? It always comes back to that. So yeah, it's just about, it's just about pitching different arguments. And to do that, you got to know the culture that you're talking with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Melody, that's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Uh, could you tell us uh, where we can get your, your book from and and where we can contact you? So give us, a, give us a, 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 even though it's at the end of the, the conversation we're having, give us a thumbnail sketch of, of who you are and where we can reach you. Yeah, so you can, uh, Bike Lanes or White Lanes is easily available on any book published, you know, Amazon bookstores. Uh, it's through the University of Nebraska Press, and so it's always good to order directly through them. Um, and I'll make sure that uh, there's a discount code that I don't have memorized, but I'll make sure that uh, you have to promote in your other venues and that you can use through the University of Nebraska Press. And then you, my website is phmelody.com, which is woefully unupdated right now, but Hey, it still has my contact information. And, uh, yeah, I'm in Minneapolis professor at a community college here, but I have my, all my contact information up on that website. And with the power of Google, you can find me and my Twitter account, uh, and get in contact with me there as well. Hey everybody, sorry to interrupt the show, but this is David and I wanted to jump in and tell you about this week's show sponsor. And of course, it's none other than Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Jensen USA is the place where you will find everything, nearly everything at least for your cycling lifestyle, whether it's road biking, mountain biking, commuting, fitness, you name it. They've got what you're looking for and All of those products are available at incredible prices, and most importantly, something that we've all come to crave here in 2016, 2017, unparalleled customer service. That's because if you call or email Jensen USA, you're not just going to get some customer support rep who really doesn't understand you and your cycling life. No, these are gear advisors, and gear advisors are cyclists just like you and me. And they live the cycling lifestyle and they've tried so much of the products that are available on Jensen USA and they've got amazing training. They're there to help you. They can tell you what works and what doesn't, which products go together and which don't. And you can tell them a little bit about what you're looking for and they can definitely point you in the right direction. And on top of all of that, Jensen is offering new customers 
who referred to them by the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast, one item at 10% off. So, I mean, you know, don't go use that on a water bottle. Go buy a bike. Go buy a new suspension for Buy something expensive. Now, some brands don't participate in promotions. And so if you see a message in your checkout that says no qualifying items in cart, go back and find something that qualifies. And then when you check out, simply enter the code, the spokesman, no spaces, plural, at checkout, and you'll get 10% off one qualifying item. That's Jensen USA, J-E-N-S-O-N, USA.com slash the spokesman. And even if you just call them, would you do us a favor and let them know that you heard about Jensen right here on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. Our thanks, our great thanks to Jensen USA for supporting the Spokesman and our thanks to you for supporting Jensen USA. And now back to the show. Thanks, David. And we are back with uh, episode 151 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And you have had Peter Norton uh, from America, even though I was interviewing him in, in Paris, France. And we've had Melody Hoffman. But now I would like to go to Scotland and have a wee chat with Professor Chris Oliver, who, as I said at the start of the show, he tweets under the, the name Cycling Surgeon. So as you can imagine, we're going to be talking about cycling and health. I'm Professor of Physical Activity for Health at the University of Edinburgh, and that's all about promoting people getting active and sitting less and walking more and cycling more. And I'm also a orthopedic surgeon at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh, and I've been doing trauma orthopedics for the last 25 years. So when I was talking to you uh, previously, you said, well, don't interview me this day because I'm in surgery all day that day. So yesterday you were basically fixing people up. Yeah, sure. I was all day in theatre and uh, I mainly do hand and uh, wrist injuries now. But I get a lot of cyclists come to me after falls off of um, crashes of bicycles. And they come from all levels. I see the commuters around town. In Edinburgh, sadly, we have a lot of um, tram injuries. Uh, since the tram has been running for the last year and a half, we've had almost 300 people who have been involved in incidents with the tram. So we get a lot of fractures from there. But I get a lot of sports cyclists uh, doing sportives and also just south of Edinburgh, we have a wonderful mountain bike centre, the Seven Stains. And from Innerleithen, we get a steady trickle of mountain bike injuries. Now, you're going to be seeing a certain type of injury because of that's your speciality. But just from a, a, a general point of view, would you say that a typical injury for a cyclist would be falling off your bike so you're going to hit your arm you're going to hit your clavicle you're going to make yeah. that sort of injury compared to say what most people assume is like a head injury no i i well firstly i think the main thing to say is cycling is comparatively safe you know you've got to travel a long way and per million miles travel the bicycle is one of the safest forms of transport it's certainly safer than a car but you know if you fall off a bike uh, for whatever reason you're generally going to fall onto your upper body. And uh, if you do sustain a fracture, it'll probably be in the upper limb. And the clavicle is certainly the most common site of a fracture. Mm. And uh, many of those clavicles we treat conservatively without an operation. It's only, I mean, only if the bone comes through the skin 
and makes an open fracture at the time of injury, would we actually do an emergency operation? I mean, we can all remember Ozzy Osbourne when he came off his quad bike and he got a really nasty open clavicle with a vascular injury and he had to have an emergency procedure. But we don't see that. That's pretty uncommon. Most of the time, clavicles are closed without coming through the skin and we can treat them in a with a sling and they'll often heal after six or eight weeks. And wh- wh- where's your interest in cycling come from? Oh, my interest, well, uh, I cycled when I was at university. I used, I was a commuter as a medical student. I used to cycle through London. So it was a mode of transport. And then, oh, I've had a very interesting story. I became morbidly obese uh, as I trained in surgery and eventually weighed uh, 27 stone and tried desperately to lose weight. And I had a gastric band and uh, that was in 2007. And then I lost 12 stone. And then during that process, I decided to get fit again. And cycling was the main mode of um, getting fit. I, 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 I couldn't even ride a bike when I was 27 stone. I was just morbidly obese and could, uh, couldn't manage more than a few hundred yards. And then I got involved with the local cycling groups in Edinburgh, tri-cycling it was called then, and did short rides and then got out with spokes and did longer rides of 40 miles. And then I realized that I could, um, if I could do 40 miles in a day, I could have a go at doing Land's End to John O'Groats. So in 2009, I did Land's End to John O'Groats. And then I thought, well, if I couldn't do Land's End to John O'Groats, I could cycle across America. So... In 2013, I rode from Los Angeles to Boston, uh, and that was a truly wonderful experience. And then I got really obsessed with cycling and policy and physical activity. And then, surprisingly, I ended up being a professor of physical activity. Is it something that medics ought to be talking about a lot more in oh. that it's preventative medicine. This is this is you're not popping pills here. You are actually if you get out on your bike, if you go walking, if you do other physical activity and perhaps especially for transport, then yeah. that's that's much better for you than than well and the medical profession yeah. is better for, yeah, we're for trying we're trying very hard and you know I advise the government up here uh, about obesity strategy and we try and uh, change the policy for cycling and walking. I mean, in Scotland, we have very good cycling and walking plans, which uh, we try to implement. And uh, we try to argue with the government to spend more money on cycling and walking. And in Edinburgh, we're pretty fortunate. They spend about 10% of the transport budget on cycling. So we're moving forward slowly, but we need a lot more infrastructure, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And with your going across America hat on and with your Land's End to, to John O'Groats hat on, is yeah. that something that you could recommend to people? Is that something that you would, you, you, you went into that with not straight away. You did that in, in no. baby steps in, in stages. No. Yeah. Well, I slowly worked up for that, but it's, you know, I, you talk to lots of cyclists and you know, they, they, they're all, Always it's a dream to do a long-distance journey for, for many cyclists, not all, but many. And I suppose um, it does motivate other people to perhaps think about doing that journey. Um, I'm not a crazy endurance rider now. I, I'll just do – I commute now. I've got 
some I'd like to do some more long distance cycles, but it's not for everybody, but it's an aspiration. And, you know, I went to speak uh, to some school kids and uh, in a uh, with a physical activity education hat on and, uh, you know, talking to those kids, they were all at secondary school. And I thought one day one of those kids might, you know, go and ride across America after listening to what I say and giving them some inspiration. Wonderful. So you, you've basically become a cycling campaigner. Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, cycling. More, it's more uh, obesity and uh, physical activity campaigning I've done. I've been, there's a cross-party group on cycling in Edinburgh that meets at the Parliament, and that's been interesting. And I've campaigned to get a physical activity group going, and they've just expanded the sport cross-party group. This is where all the MSPs meet together and talk to each other. And they've included active living in that group now. So these are interesting groups because you're in the same room as a collection of um, members of parliament. And they, you know, they do have some effect on policy. And I think this is very important to try and get this top level buy-in to changing and improving cycling plans and walking plans and obesity plans across governments. Yeah, across in Glasgow, we've seen cycling infrastructure just recently being proposed to be being ripped out, which is against, you would assume, what the Scottish government will be after. But that's local councillors have done that. Yeah, that was crazy. So how do you influence the local councillors? Because maybe you're getting through to the, the, the national, the MSPs, but you're not getting through to, to the local boards. I think you've just got to go and meet these people and uh, challenge them. I think the Beards Way pro- uh, problem is sad. And uh, that was uh, whipped up by a load of local councillors and one particular political party. And they decided to kill the project. And I think that was wrong. And there's a big backlash against that, because if that happens locally in Glasgow, then it may happen in other places around Scotland or England. And um, I think our current uh, transport minister in England um, is perhaps not on par with what he should be saying. And a lot of these ministers, you know, you have to court them. You have to get them on side. And uh, our transport minister in Scotland, Keith Brown, we eventually got him on a bike and we eventually got him to do half of pedal for scotland and uh, these people then start to understand what it's really all about and there's a lot of education needed at all levels Thank you to Professor Chris Oliver there, and thank you to my other guests today, Peter Norton and Dr. Melody Hoffman. This has been episode 151 of the Spokesman Roundtable podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the blog, which is the-spokesmen.com. And you've been listening to Carlton Reed, and I'll be back next week with the usual show and the normal Motley crew. Thanks to you for listening, and get out there and ride.